One of the most profound realities of our Christian faith is that all of those who belong to Jesus Christ are in fact one in Christ. If you've placed your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, if you've trusted in his righteousness alone to justify you before God, then you are in fact part of this profound reality. Because the Lord in calling you to himself in opening your eyes to the gospel, in granting to you the gift of repentance that you might turn from sin and embrace the finished work of Christ on the cross. In doing that, the Lord has called you into fellowship with himself and in fact called you into fellowship with every other person who has also done that. He has made you part of his church. It's God's design, it's God's intended purpose that every member of his body be one with every other part of his body. And in fact, the unity that we share in Christ is a significant part of our witness to a watching world, a world that is, by the way, fractured and separated by a thousand superficial differences. Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, said this about the believer's unity. He said, there is but one God, and they that serve him should be one. There is nothing that would render the true religion more lovely or make more proselytes to it than to see the professors of it tied together with the heartstrings of love. If God be one, let, then let those who profess him be of one mind and one heart, thus fulfilling Christ's prayer that they may all be one. As Watson noted, our Lord himself prayed for the unity of those who would truly follow him. In fact, he addressed this all-important truth of the unity of believers twice in his great high priestly prayer of John 17. In verse 10 of that chapter, he spoke to the Father in prayer, and he said this, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. He said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And again, in verse 20 of the same chapter, the Lord mentions unity the second time, and he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for all of those who will believe in me through them through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Two comments about the Lord's words here, just in passing. First of all, Jesus included every one of us in that prayer for unity. He prayed for those who would believe in him through the witness of the apostles. That is every one of us. So we were included in that prayer. A second observation is that we see here the vital importance of our practical unity and how that serves to promote our witness to the truth of our faith to a watching world. He said, so that the world might believe that you sent me. So this matter of unity is very, very important. Our text this morning will help us to understand both the nature of our unity in Christ and the vital significance of of it. I would ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, 
and we'll be looking at the first three verses, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. As you're turning there, let me give you a very, very broad context for the book, an overview of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is one of four letters of what we know as the prison epistles. Paul wrote these four letters in the first of two Roman imprisonments, and the other prison epistles, as we call them, are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Ephesians generally divides into two halves, so typical of the way Paul wrote. Chapters 1 to 3 focus on everything that God has done for the believer in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, he turns the corner, and chapters 4 through 6 are all of the responsibilities of the believer in light of all that God has done for him or her, detailed in chapters 1 through 3. So with that as a broad overview, please follow as I read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Please bow with me as we pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Lord, we come to this time and we ask your enablement. Our wisdom is foolishness, our strength is weakness. Lord, we need the ministry of your Holy Spirit to enliven your word, to take your word and apply it to the hearts of those who listen. Lord, we pray that you would do that for your glory and for the blessing of your church. We pray that you would keep us free from distraction. Help us to hear you in your word as you expound it to us. In your precious name, amen. So let me say this. What we have in this text before us is a strong exhortation to unity. And it is, in fact, in a very real sense, this exhortation to unity is part of our sanctification in Christ. It's part of what God uses to make us more and more like his son as he prepares us to spend eternity in heaven with him. Let me give you the outline that we're going to use as we work through this text. Three points. First of all, we see a supreme commitment in verse 1. Secondly, a beautiful portrait in verse 2. And then thirdly, a powerful connection in verse 3. So let's begin with a supreme commitment. Look back at the text. I'll read verse 1 again. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Notice here that Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord. Three times in this short epistle, the Lord, the, Paul refers to him this way. In chapter 3, verse 1, he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Here in 4.1, we just read it. And then, then in chapter 6, verse 20, he refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. What's the point? Paul is pointing to his own commitment as a supreme commitment and the example that the believers in Ephesus and we by extension are to follow. The call to serve Christ can be very, very costly, can't it? 
It was for the Apostle Paul. This first element of this exhortation to unity immediately destroys the rampant individualism of our culture because that individualism is destructive to true Christian unity. Your commitment to Christ should be supreme. No higher commitment. It should be the highest priority of your life. The apostle sees the sovereignty of God and the glory of God even in his imprisonment because his life is not about himself. It's not about his comfort, his plans, his priorities. He belongs to Christ so that the the priorities of his Lord overrule and outweigh all of those things, everything else in his life. This is the supreme commitment that is so very vital if true Christian unity is to be a reality. But let me ask you a question. Are you to do this in your own strength and power? Not at all. Look back at verse 1, the first word, therefore. You know, I tell people that anytime you're reading the Word of God and you see the word therefore, you should stop and say, hmm, what's that therefore, therefore? Okay? Because therefore is always the conclusion of an argument. And here it says that unity, it says that this is, in this case, this therefore takes us all the way back to Ephesians 1 verse 1. Remember what I said a minute ago about the first three chapters, indicate everything that God has done for us in drawing us to himself and giving us faith in Christ. You are to embrace this commitment in light of who you are and in light of all that God has done for you. He calls you to this commitment in his power, in his strength, in light of the fact that you belong to him, that you've been raised from the dead, that you've been given the gift of his Holy Spirit who empowers you, who has sealed you, and who gives you all that he gives you in Christ. There's also a sense of urgency here. Look at verse one again. He says, I urge you. Literally, this word means to call to one side to provide both aid and comfort and support. This is an appeal to the will. What is he urging you to do? Look back at the text in verse one, to walk in a worthy manner. Your walk is your daily conduct. He's talking about the daily details of your life, the small choices that you make even as a, as a matter of habit, as a matter of course. The smallest details, the, the, the habitual manner of behavior is what he has in mind. And the point is this, your manner of life in every detail should correspond to your profession as followers of Jesus Christ. The apostle characterizes this manner, this walk, as worthy. That's an interesting word that that shows us what he's talking about. Worthy is a word that literally means to bring up the beam of the scale, to bring things into proper balance. So he says, every detail of your life should be in balance. It should balance your profession as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians about the same time he wrote Ephesians. And in that letter, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says this, whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Doing all things in the name of Christ. That means consciously presenting to him everything, every word, every thought, every action as a pleasing sacrifice. Is that a weighty call? That's a very weighty call. Our text says that this supreme commitment to pursue unity is anchored in the monumentally significant truth of God's sovereign call on your life. Look back at verse 1 one more time. He refers to the calling to which you have been called. Now, this is a normal, the normal word that designates a person or a thing by a particular name. But in biblical terms, this word call has a much, much greater significance. It refers to choosing someone as a recipient of a special benefit or blessing or experience. You have been chosen by God to be the recipient of salvation and all the blessings that come with that. And Paul says, this is the the reality that gives power to this supreme commitment. The word calling and called here are the same word from which the word church comes. So we are called out ones. We are called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. We are called out of the dominion of Satan and darkness to the blazing glorious light of the gospel and truth. We are called to the kingdom of Christ. The important issue that we need to see is this, that you would fully realize the weighty nature of the call on your life and that the, 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 the requirement that that call places on your life and that weighty call includes the unity of those who follow Christ. So having given this Exhortation to unity by means of a supreme commitment, Paul now provides us with a beautiful portrait of that unity in verse 2. Let's look at the beautiful portrait. This is a, a fourfold description of the worthy walk that the apostle has just told us about. These, in fact, are crucial elements if you are to live in the unity to which you are called. Look at verse 2 with me. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, in a very real sense, this is how you gauge whether your walk is a worthy walk. How present are these virtues in your daily life? This is a very practical application of the worthy walk that the apostle has just described. It should be characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience, and by endurance. We're going to look at each one of those briefly, but before we do that, I want you to notice the first word in verse two. He says, with all. All is all, any, every, or the whole without exception. And in the grammar, the way this is put together, that word all governs all four of those virtues that I just read. So the the point is this. You need to be exercising these virtues in the power of the Lord all the time. In every situation where they could possibly be called for, you need to be ready in the power of His Spirit to exercise these. 
What are they? First of all, humility. This is literally humble-mindedness. And I want to note that this is the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about others. This comes first in this, in this list of virtues because humble-mindedness gives rise to all four of these virtues. A proper view of self is rooted in being rightly related to God. After speaking about our being living sacrifices to the Lord and being transformed by the power of God instead of conformed to this world, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12.3 says this. He says, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sober judgment. Literally, that is to think with right thinking. Do you see the connection? This is genuine humility. Genuine humility is having an accurate view of yourself that comes in relationship to God as you see yourself in the context of who God has made you to be, what he says about you, and that flows out from, from God to you to others around you. Let me take you back to Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, a very familiar text, one of the prison epistles again, Paul wrote this during that same imprisonment. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is genuine humility. Andrew Murray captures the essence of humility in his book by the same title when he says this. He says, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing. It is to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me, when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in, shut the door, and kneel to my Father in secret, and am at peace in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. That's humility, isn't it? Humility is seeing ourselves completely dependent upon the grace of God, deserving nothing but judgment but receiving in its place the immeasurable grace of God and all that comes with that in our relationship with Christ. It is to glory in all of that. Valuing one another as precious ones for whom Jesus Christ went to the cross and laid down his life. As fellow heirs of the promises of God with whom we will spend eternity worshiping around the throne. That is a genuinely humble perspective. You know, the opposite of humble-mindedness is high-mindedness. It is having too high an opinion of yourself. You know, folks, we live in a culture that says it's impossible to have too high an opinion of yourself. Our culture builds that into us from day one. But the reality is this, there is nothing more destructive to genuine Christian unity than thinking that the world revolves around you. 
that everyone in the world must adjust themselves to your desires, your priorities, your wishes, your values, or your perspective. You know, it's natural for fallen man to think very highly of himself and of his abilities and accomplishments because that's all they have. It's a totally horizontal perspective. But for those who name the name of Christ, for those who hope, whose hope is in heaven, it shouldn't be that way. Moving through life, exalting yourself, having to defend yourself against every supposed wrong, being alert to every slight at every turn, every wrong, demanding that everyone acknowledge your greatness, that's a terrible burden to carry through life. That's a heavy burden. Because so many people will go out of their way to show you how wrong you are. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was himself the perfect picture of humility. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, he says this, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, that is humility, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the Lord of glory. This is the one who occupies the very highest place. And he says, I am the humble one. He says, bring me your burden, your burden of sin. If you are tired of carrying that burden, Jesus says, give that to me. Come to me and I will give you in place of your burden of sin, the gift of my righteousness. I will welcome you to myself. I will forgive you of whatever you have done and I will make you my child. You can then, in the power of the Spirit, embrace this humility and the freedom that comes in the power of the gospel, the freedom from sin, and all of the virtues that come with your salvation. The second superlative virtue in this beautiful portrait is gentleness. Look at verse two again. Gentleness is courteous consideration of others. This is a willingness to waive one's rights. Instead of defending your rights against everybody, it's a willingness to lay down your rights. To say, my life is not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about his church. It's about his beloved ones. That's what my life is about. It's to lay down your rights out of a greater desire to seek the common good. In this case, the common good is the unity of believers in the glory of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Commentator William Hendrickson describes gentleness this way. He says, this is submissiveness under provocation. It's a willingness rather to suffer injury than to inflict it. That's good, isn't it? The Lord is once again our perfect example of this virtue. In John 19, Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate asks the Lord, where are you from? I don't know how he would answer that, but, but Jesus remains silent. He's not going to dignify this illegal trial with even an answer. So Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or to crucify you? Outwardly, it looks like Jesus is very, very passive, that he's doing nothing at all. 
But fortunately for us, the apostle Peter gives us a picture of what was really happening, what was going on on the inside. Let me read for you 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23. Who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was anything but passive. He was very, very active. He was continually saying, my father knows, my father sees, my father is the perfectly holy, just, and righteous judge, and he will judge in his righteousness, in his holiness. He says, I am content to leave the judgment with my all-wise Father. That is true gentleness. What unity would exist if we were to practice this continually? If when wronged or personally offended by someone, you would entrust yourself to the Lord who judges justly and leave it with him. What amazing powerful unity that would provide to a watching world. No wonder this kind of unity will convince unbelievers that Jesus is in fact God and that he has power unlike any other. Well, we've looked at humility, we've looked at gentleness. The third superlative in this uh, portrait is the virtue of patience. Again, verse two, patience is being long-tempered. It is the ability to make allowances for the shortcomings of others. When they fail to meet your expectations or perhaps when their behavior is even exasperating. How do you respond? Patience says, I will choose to endure difficult, painful, or even negative circumstances without complaining and without becoming provoked. This kind of patience is a, is a quality of God himself. Listen to Romans 2, chapter 4, where that same word is used. Or do you presume on the, righteous, uh, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, most people who continue in willful rejection of the gospel wrongly assume that since God does not deal immediately with sin, that he's not going to deal with sin. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to verse 5 that, that follows the verse I just read. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's righteous judgment will be revealed in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect time. That was Jesus' confidence as he stood before Pilate. That's why he was able to exercise this quality of patience. This, is, this has to be your hope in the face of difficult circumstances, that one day the Lord's righteous judgment will be revealed. There will come, to an, there will come an end to the patience of God. There will. And when that happens, the Lord Jesus Christ will be the only refuge from judgment. Well, the fourth superlative in this 
portrait is endurance. We'll call it endurance. Verse 2 says, bearing with one another. This is enduring or putting up with one another. You ever feel like you need to put up with somebody in your fellowship? Well, welcome to the fellowship of the saints. Because we all have to put up with one another from time to time. This is closely associated with the virtue of patience that we just talked about. But I want to caution you here. This bearing with one another is not unconditional positive regard that is held up as such a virtue in our culture. The idea that says, well, I accept you and I love you no matter what. That is a, that is a lie of the pit. Because that is not what this endurance is. This is choosing in the power of God to put up with the faults or the idiosyncrasies of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This bearing with is not a passive resignation. Well, you're here and I'm here, so I guess I'll just have to put up with you. That is not what this is talking about. This is very, very active like the Lord himself. It is choosing to focus on positive, supportive, gracious acceptance of your brother or sister in Christ. Choosing to love in the power of Christ for the good of his body. That's what this endurance is. Because we all have idiosyncrasies, don't we? We're all a little strange. And we need to choose for the glory of Christ to put up with one another. That is unity and that puts the, the focus on the power of God and the glory of Christ. Because the Lord delights in bringing together a very diverse group of people. Diverse in perspectives, diverse in tastes, in preferences, in life situations, in age. All kinds of diversity, diversity of race, ethnicity, every possible way except our commitment to Jesus Christ and the truths of this book. That is diversity and the Lord desires unity in the midst of that diversity. What is the power that makes this possible? Look at the end of verse 2. He says that all of these virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, and endurance are to be exercised in love. You see it there at the end of verse 2. This is critically important. Remember the therefore that comes at the beginning of verse 1, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, that takes us all through everything that the Lord has accomplished on our behalf that brings us to this passage. Ephesians focuses, one through three, focuses on all the things that God has done for us. All that is part of your salvation in Christ. The rich, full expression of the love of God for us in Christ. That needs to flow out in your love toward one another. And it looks like these virtues. By the way, this love has nothing to do with the loveliness or attractiveness of the object of its love. This is intelligent love. It's a love of choice. It's a purposeful love. It chooses to love based upon facts. The fact that, that, that God has called that person to faith in him, the same as he has called you. That is the basis for exercising this love. It's all about God having called you to himself and in doing that, shedding abroad his love in your heart and giving you an inner compulsion to love other believers. That is what this love is. 
This puts the supernatural power of Christ on display for the world to see. When there is genuine love and unity in a fellowship that is so diverse that there is no reason on earth why these people should be together and yet there is genuine unity, that puts the focus on Christ and his power and brings great glory to the living God whose church it is. So this can't be counterfeited. It can't be falsified. It can only be by this supreme commitment, number one, this beautiful portrait, number two, and thirdly, Look at verse 3, a powerful connection. Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word eager is to be in a hurry. It's to recognize the great importance of the matter at hand and to be fully committed to pursuing it. He says, be in a hurry. This is an especially uh, significant focused uh, focus of your attention. The idea here is to always, always put forth maximum effort to accomplish this because of its great importance. Not only is the level of effort emphasized, but we also see that it's a continuous purpose to continually exercise this. He says, always be or continuously be without interruption seeking to accomplish this. What is it that we're to be continually putting forth maximum effort to accomplish? Middle of verse 3, he says to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If you notice there in your text, the word Spirit is capitalized because it's a reference to the third member of the Trinity. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit who is the one who brings about this powerful connection. It is your daily connection to the Spirit of God who dwells in you where you find the power to pursue and to maintain the unity that he has provided. This is to continually to apply the work of Christ on the cross to each one of you. That's what the Spirit of God does. He is united you with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. He makes you members of his household, members of his body, members of the household of Christ. Each one a living, vital member of the body of Christ. Note here, we're never told to create this unity, and it's something that we need to understand. This comes only through the power of the Spirit. No human effort, I'll say it again, no human effort can create true unity. It will never succeed because the world can only focus on outward conformity. And when that is forced from the outside, that only produces fear and resentment, which only further divides people. This genuine unity comes only by the power of the person of the Spirit of God working powerfully in the life of each of his children. You are to maintain, to carefully guard this unity which the Spirit has provided. You do that by submitting to the Lord, by yielding to him, by considering your life as caught up in his life, as his priorities more important than your own. You are to do this, the text says, in the bond of peace. The bond of peace, that is the peace that now exists between you and the living God as a result of what Christ has done. 
Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this peace of God flows out into peace with those around you. And in the fellowship of the faith, it looks like genuine unity. If the supernatural love is present and the peace with God that, that, that produces that is present, then the inevitable result will be supernatural unity in the fellowship. There will be humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance of one another to the glory of Christ. We'll put the power and the love of God on display for a watching world. We started by pointing out that seeking to maintain the unity of the faith is part of how God prepares us for eternity with him. It's part of the sanctification process. I want to take you to, uh, I want to close by reading a passage which is the greatest example of unity and diversity. This is the greatest diversity that could ever be and at the same time the most perfect unity that will ever exist. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these amazing truths. Thank you for the power that you give us. Help us to submit to you to guard the unity which you have provided for us in our diversity that we might be a powerful witness for you to a watching world, that we might put your power and glory on display. Lord, glorify yourself in this, we pray in your precious name. Amen.